pity the arse that's clagged to a head that will hunt stones. You want me to say that again? I know there were some, some unusual words in there. Let me run it by you one more time. Lord, pity the arse that's clagged to a head that will hunt stones. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I know that you are just dying to know what that's all about. And I'm going to get back to that in just a minute. But first, it's 4th of July week here in, in the U.S. Uh, in fact, I think I'm, re- I'm recording on the 3rd. You're probably going to hear this. If you, if you listen to it on the first day that it drops, which I know you will because all of you are anxiously awaiting the next episode, then it will be July 4th, which, uh, you know, is a big deal here in the U.S. Now, I mentioned this before. Uh, I mentioned, I mean, not, not, not July 4th, but... Uh, on a, I guess it was, well, it was when I did the, the episode for the week of uh, Memorial Day, another holiday here. And, um, and I mentioned how, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, you have these, and I guess, you know, this is the case probably for any country. Um, you have certain national, national, proof, <laughs> national, you have certain national holidays that, uh, that are, you know, cause for celebration in your own country, but are perhaps maybe not cause for celebration in other places. And, and you know, um, this probably wasn't a huge problem in society until we started having things like, you know, podcasts with international audiences. And so you have to be careful, right? Like, like not, well, not, I mean, you know, we're not... I know we're not a bunch of a bunch of fussy people listening to this show, but you you know you don't want to be like like uh, be uh, so preoccupied with something that Americans think is is great, but maybe came at the expense of somebody else. Uh, however, it is Independence Day in the U.S., and every country has their Independence Day, and and I think everybody can understand, everybody can appreciate the desire to celebrate whenever your country was formed. Um, you know, even though maybe perhaps when that happened, it wasn't like a great for everybody, you know, around. Uh, now, I do want to make this one comment, which is we do celebrate Independence Day on July 4th. That was when the famous Declaration of Independence was uh, was written now uh, or signed. Anyway, I know I think they took a little while to write it. Um, just looking at the handwriting, I feel like it took a while to write that. But um, that was when it was signed by all the, all the people that signed it. Um, and, and, you know, uh, and off we go. Now, recently in the public forum, in the public square, there's been some debate about whether we really ought to uh, consider that to be our, uh, you know, the, for- the, the, the beginning of, of America. The, or, or, or should it be some other time? Uh, and this is, I'm not going to get, this is not the politics show, so I'm not going to get into it. Um, but I do want to say that, um, well, I'm going to get into it a little bit, just, just, just a little bit. Uh, and, and here's the thing, um, and this will be of less interest to you, those of you who are not here in the U.S., but for those of you who are, and if you're getting stuck in this whole argument, I, I think that it, it's a fairly, this is a fairly simple question to answer. Factually, there was not a country, there was no nation that went by the name United States of America prior to July 1776. Um, now, uh, you could make an argument that says, well, actually, maybe at least like philosophically, maybe the country, I mean, just because a bunch of guys signed a paper doesn't mean presto, you're an independent uh, nation. Certainly, certainly the folks over in England 
<laughs> you know, they didn't, uh, the king didn't say, oh, well, they signed a paper, I guess we'll stop taxing them. So, you know, we had to, had to fight the war and all that, which, and actually a lot of people don't realize this, but the war was kind of already, it was already started, you know, the shot heard around the world and Paul Revere and all that business had already happened the year before. And so there were some events that had to play out. Uh, and you could even argue maybe, maybe we had to finish the war for independence, or maybe we had to have a government installed, um, you know, and uh, so you could argue that maybe the true day that the country was formed was sometime a little later. Uh, I think the war was, well, it took about three years. Um, so, so at least symbolically, July 4th, 1776, you know, that's, that's kind of, it's the day we made up our mind, this is what we're going to do. So you could argue, you could argue that the real f- forming of the nation technically was later than that. However, what you cannot argue is that the forming of the nation was earlier than that because there was no country that went by that name. And the country that eventually did go by that name was a bunch of colonies, uh, uh, you know, from, from another, uh, that were, that were under the control of some other place. So, so there's no, there's no lack of clarity about when the country was initiated. Now, if you want to ask the question, what about you know, when, when was, if you want to talk about society and culture and, and, and when was, when was the society and the culture formed that was kind of the underpinnings of what became the country now, now you can, you can get into a debate about when that was and when, what, what significant factors played into that. Uh, but since this is not the politics the show, uh, I'm not going to get into that part. However, if you're curious to know, what I think about that, then uh, you should tune into uh, Saving the Dream, the other podcast that I have. That, that uh, you can find it on YouTube. Actually, you can find it on on Apple and Spotify too. But it's more fun to go to YouTube because there's video. And uh, and I think um, I'm, I'm, if I can work it in this week, I'm going to do a, a a short episode with my thoughts on that whole bit. But back to the main thing. This is the Oilfield Ingenuity Show, and so we're going to talk about Oilfield Ingenuity now. The last couple of episodes, uh, one could argue, uh, were focused uh, mostly, mostly kind of on the engineering aspect, uh, the engineering discipline within, uh, you know, so under, under the heading of oilfield ingenuity, uh, there's a lot of engineering, and, uh, but there's also science. And there's also other things, but let's just stick with two broad categories for right now, Eng- engineering and science. Now, um, the interesting thing is that uh, in this particular um, industry, uh, the, the engineering kind of preceded the science, um, not in the sense of its existence in the world, uh, because the science that was brought to bear started earlier, uh, but it wasn't really brought into the picture of, uh, of finding and extracting hydrocarbons uh, until until after the engineering was already was already at work so uh, and, and and here's what happened uh, it's pretty simple if you're following the story so far which I know is not uh, from episode to episode is not particularly particularly linear um, but it is a story nonetheless and and you know that the engineering started because uh, oil was seeping up out of the ground, uh, and in uh, these things that they used to call uh, were cleverly named oil seeps because that's where it came out. And so uh, we went from you know digging a hole and scooping it out to to some clever ways of uh, 
of in fact was it last episode that we talked about the the uh what do you call that thing the drilling the first the it's i i got nothing what's it called all right anyway you know the thing i'm talking about where they uh where they drop the 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 heavy chisel like tool uh cable tool jeez wow it's uh it's only monday folks so uh just be glad that i don't record these later in the week so so you know the engineering came and said all right well we got to find better ways to get this stuff out of the ground and uh where we can get more out you know more because uh, remember we are driving i'm sure i bet that even even in the minds of those people uh back then uh you know what they were thinking they were thinking you know guys you know someday somebody is gonna have to supply abundant affordable reliable energy to the world and damn it, it's going to be us. So uh, I'm sure that, that that objective was in their head the whole time. And so they, so they started doing a lot of smart things to get there. Now, the next objective, or the next challenge, I should say, is uh, what about when there aren't any more seeps? I mean, uh, up until now, the exploration part of exploration and production uh, was kind of done for us by Mother Nature. Uh, we look at oh, there's oil coming out of the ground over here. Let's go drill for it. But but now that we've done that, uh, you know there must there must be more down there. There must be some more. And and how do we find it? And that ties in nicely with my story about 1776. Because let me tell you what else was going on right around that time is a man named James Hutton who is uh I guess he's he's kind of known as the uh the father of modern geology James Hutton who is uh or was <laughs> I assume he's gone by now um uh James was a was Scottish uh, I believe he uh, lived or, or, or around Edinburgh uh, which, ironically, there's quite a few oil companies in Edinburgh these days. But uh, James James was in Edinburgh, but uh, he actually uh, traveled around quite a bit. And here's why he traveled around. Because uh, he was a rock collector. And uh, and that. Now, see, now it's all coming together. Lord, pity the arse that's clagged to a head that will hunt stones. Written, by, written in a letter by James Hutton to somebody. I don't remember who he was writing to. And he wrote from Bath... Um, he wasn't the, you know, the, pl the place bath. He wasn't in the bath. Well, you know, um, he might've been in the bath because the city of Bath is named after the Roman baths that were installed there. So, you know, James might've been in the bath when he wrote this, but anyway, wherever he was, he was there in Bath and the year was 1774. So see right around the same time, wheels within wheels. Now, um, now, let's break down his statement a little bit there. This is kind of fun. Uh, because he's... Um, so, the thing that you should know is that uh, he's on horseback, traveling around, um, you know, looking looking for rocks. He's a, he's a rock collector. And, uh, and so, he's on horse because, because um, you know, there weren't... There were no SUVs then. Uh, we're get, you know, that, that came later after we found a way to power them. So he says, Lord, pity the arse. Now, uh, I know all of my UK friends are uh, chuckling a little bit right now. And, uh, and maybe some of us in the U.S. are going, what does that mean? So, uh, well, let me give you a hint. 
He's uh, he's spending a lot of time on the horse, a lot of time, a lot of time on the horse, and he says, "Pity the arse." So uh, I I suspect that uh, that uh, uh, that James Hutton was suffering from some some saddle sores, or or to put it in the to put it in a different vernacular for those of you who remember the. Uh, and the movie City Slickers, when they were taking off on the uh, on the cattle drive, and Billy Crystal uh, adapted adapted a classic old western uh, with the lyrics "Rolling, rolling, rolling, oh my ass is swollen." That is what James Hutton had been singing, uh, or <laughs> would would have would have been singing. He would have been singing had the show Rawhide. Uh, already been on TV at that time, but it wasn't, so he doesn't know that one. Uh, but he did write this from Bath, and he and he says, uh, you know, this is this is uh, kind of tough on the butt, um, hunting stones. Now, what you know, I bet that if he were being really honest, he, the, I bet the hardest part, because uh, you know, people spend a lot of people back then, you spend a lot of time on a horse, so you know, you're uh, you're. I think people are, you know, being on the horse wasn't probably so much the problem. But if you're hunting rocks on a horse, how many times are you getting down off the horse and back on the horse, you know, throughout the course of a day or a week? That's a lot of times up and down off the horse. So I bet his, I, I bet really his thighs were burning and probably what happened. It was kind of like the first Stairmaster. But anyway, let me tell you a little bit about, uh, about James and how he factors into our story. Uh, let's see. Um, that's not what I'm looking for. Here we are. This is on the American Museum of Natural History website. They've, they've devoted an article to, uh, to James Hutton, born in 1726 and died in 1797. So uh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, uh, his ass on the horse was hurting him in 1774. 1797, he died. So I think it's safe to say it wasn't from that. It was probably from something else. But he was a Scottish farmer and naturalist. Naturalist, folks. And not don't get that confused with naturist. That's a completely different thing. He was a Scottish farmer and naturalist, and he is known as the founder of modern geology. He was a great observer of the world around him. And uh, <laughs> I guess I guess he was. And more importantly, he made carefully reasoned geological arguments. Uh, he came to believe that the earth was perpetually being formed. For example, molten material is forced up into the mountains, and then it erodes, and then the sediments washed away, right? We know that whole cycle. Um, uh, and he recognized that the history of the earth could be determined by understanding how processes such as erosion and sedimentation work in the present day. Uh, his ideas and approach to studying the earth established geology as a proper science. So, of course, we all know that, uh, that uh, our, our, our oil field days would have probably been... Well, this is how it all comes together, right? Because uh, had we not... Had, had we relied only on, on the brilliant engineering and didn't have the science of geology, where would we be? We would, I mean, talk about dry holes. That would be, it would be a lot of them if we were just now the wildcatters, you know, they had kind of like a sixth sense. But maybe it wasn't such a sixth sense because uh, what, uh, what, what people figured out. Now, this guy, uh, Hutton, oh, shoot, I just lost the, lost the thing. All right. The, uh, my trusty iPad is not so trusty today. Um, so it started with him, this whole notion of geology. And this is actually really fascinating. Um, I don't have time on the show um, 
It really, I don't. And uh, I know I've been I know I've been known to stretch the time boundary a little bit, but in this case, there's some really interesting stuff, uh, kind of from Hutton to other people that kind of came. Uh, he wrote this he wrote this book or paper, whatever it's called, called Theory of the Earth, and and then other people built on that work. And um, uh, let's see, there was this guy. What was his name? Uh, something uh, Lewis or something like that. He, you know, different people built on the work and and expanded and kind of reinforced. In fact, yeah, let me let me. Ah, I know what I need to do. I need to take you to Groundbreakers, the the Groundbreakers book, uh, because there's some good stuff on here in here on that. Hold on while I reposition my microphone for book reading. Um, yeah, let's see. Okay. Uh, one thing interesting about James Hutton is people, <laughs> people in his, in his day, they thought he was kind of out there. They, they were like, mm, you know, uh, first of all, most people, most people at that point in time believed that the earth was considerably younger. And so they were having a hard time with, uh, with some of his observations, but, um, but he did, he did gain a few adherents. Uh, well, no, he gained few. He didn't. No, nobody believed him. Sorry, I'm reading that wrong. Uh, until this guy, Charles Lyell. That must be what I was thinking of when I said Lewis. Lewis Lyell. I think there's a different guy named Lewis in the story here somewhere. Anyway, Charles Lyell. He arrived on the scene um, in the uh, late 1820s and early 1830s. This is. I'm sure that you can find this somewhere else, but this is thanks to our friends uh, who wrote Groundbreakers. Uh, the easy reference. Uh, late. 1820s, early 1830s. He was a lawyer turned a geologist. Well, he can thank James Hutton for that because uh, it was prior to 50 years ago, there was no such thing as a geologist. So now it's been 50 years since um, since uh, since James Hutton and his aching arse. Uh, in fact, I think there's a book called Hutton's Arse. You can look for that. Uh, it, you know, it's I, I, that's all I'm going to say. And uh, so it's been 50 years and now we got these things called geologists and it must be a pretty good job because this guy was a lawyer and decided to be a geologist instead. And he wrote the seminal, seminal, that means it was really important, Principles of Geology. Now this, I love the way they used to title things. I, we've, we've, we've seen this before. Some short little title like Principles of Geology and then comes the subtitle. Being an attempt to explain the former changes in the Earth's surfaces by references to causes now in operation. I would read that to you again, but it doesn't matter. All right. It was a three-volume work. Okay. Well, hence the long sub. I mean, three volumes. You need a long subtitle when it's three volumes. And uh, it, it, essentially, it was, it was based on, it really, it really it was Hutton's theory. And, uh, and, and then he supported that with a lot of observations that he made himself, this guy Lyle. Uh, who was also from Scotland, and uh, and he spent some time in England and, and on the continent and uh, the European continent, and uh, so so he uh, let's see he he coined a phrase the present is the key to the past. Um, I'll just let you think about that for a second. Think, we're thinking about geology now, folks. The, the present is the <laughs> easy for me to say. The present is the key to the past. Now. I'm gonna fast forward through some of the details here of who figured out what and put the, the, the all the putting all the boxes and the, and the things together, but because um, there was a lot of other people to credit. But eventually, eventually, we get to something called uh, anticlines. I think I'm saying that right. So for those of you geologists out there, you can laugh at me if I'm saying it wrong. Like maybe it's 
like anticlines or something. It's it's A N T C L C L I N E S anticlines. Anticlines. It's anticlines, right? Like like decline, anticline, etc. An anticline, folks. Now I have a nice picture of an anticline here. I can describe. I can describe it for you. Uh, where is it? Where is that? Where is that picture? I got it. Uh, so it's basically. An anticline is, uh, I don't know where the picture is. The picture's gone. Um, it's its where the earth, uh, the surface of the earth kind of like forms a, like it's like pushing up and it's forming a, uh, uh, like a peak, right? And the layers are all, so if you look at the layers, then it's kind of like a hill. Um, but all the layers uh, under, you know, are, are, are all sort of bent up in this uh, ascending uh, point uh, versus whatever you call the other thing, which is where it goes the other direction. I forget what it's called. Some other kind of cline. And, um, and what people figured out, now hold on, where in the hell is that thing I had that had a picture on it? I don't know. Um, I should probably stop at this point to edit this part out, but I'm kind of in a hurry, so I'm not going to. So... Here's the, uh, here's the thing. Oh, here's the picture. <laughs> it's in the book. The picture's not in my trusty iPod. iPod. <laughs> it's been a while. I told you folks, it's only Monday. Um, not, it wasn't on my iPad. It's in the book. And uh, yeah, so you got this, you got a, an anticline, which is, uh, you know, where the earth pushes upward. So there's like a bend uh, up and over and down. And so you've got the, uh, this little, this little, uh, uh, this, um, this illustration, let's see, what is this? This is an, an idealized sketch of an anticline, a geolog, a geologic phenomenon that traps oil, <sighs> traps oil. So here's what happens. So I, I try to, try to visualize this. You got these layers, you got the cap rock and you got the, 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 you know, whatever, like the, the reservoir rock and something else underneath it. And so what happens is, uh, down in the reservoir, what we now call the reservoir rock, the oil, uh, uh, let's see, oil being lighter than water accumulates in the reservoir rock under the crest of the cap rock. So, um, now, the question is, uh, when, when did we start thinking that perhaps there might be all under them there, Cap Rocks? Um, here we go. Here we go. This is going to tie it all together for you. Anticlines, the new discipline of geology. Uh, so anyway, when you read the history of Hutton and then the guys that came after him, they, they figured out all this stuff about the strata and the right. And anyway, so somebody named it an anticline. That, that came first. What's the other one called? A syncline. Not a sync line, but a S-Y-N-C-L-I-N-E. So, uh, so they named it that. And then uh, somebody, um, here we go, here we go. The new discipline of geology was soon embraced outside Europe. Canada's geological survey was founded in 1842 by some guy in Montreal who came from the mining business with a deep knowledge of coal. All these things are interrelated. And uh, he had also traveled to the oil springs in Gaspé, Quebec. Uh, and, and here's what he said. This guy, what's his name? William Edmund Logan said, Here the connection is evident between the oil springs and undulations of the strata from which form which form the accumulation of the petroleum. So uh, basically what happened, folks, is uh, somehow this, this geological theory and these principles found their way into the, found its way into the heads of the people who are trying to figure out where the oil is and um, and 
they said, you know what, oil accumulates underneath those things. And, um, and that was really the beginning of exploration geology. So now, and in my comment earlier about, hey, maybe the wildcats, maybe it wasn't really a sixth sense. Uh, because the reality is that certain geological shapes, right, formations, but when you see the ground go like this and like this, um, even if you don't understand, like, the science of what's happening under there, uh, like, intuitively, because you've seen 10 of them already, you go, ah, I bet there's oil in there. And that's really what the, a lot of the wildcatters are doing. But, um, but this whole concept, uh, there it is, anticlines and synclines, um, got into the heads of the people that were that were looking for oil and they figured out let's see here we go let's go back to the book the anticlinal 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 the anticlinal theory thus became the backbone of oil geology and it remained of crucial importance for many oil and gas discoveries in the 20th century the first successful wild oh here's okay so a little change of gears here the first successful wildcat in the Middle East. Oh boy, here we go. This is a place in Persia. Am I going to try to say this? I'm going to try to say this. So those of you uh, Persians out there, get ready. Here it comes. Majid e Sulaiman in Persia in 1908. Uh, this was the first successful wildcat in the Middle East. was located on an anticline. 30 years later, in the classic textbook, Fundamentals of the Petroleum Industry, the U.S. geologist Dorsey Hager stated unequivocally that the anticlinal ant <laughs> what is it anticlinal Ant anticlinal theory i don't know Caleb Ball, you are a geologist tell me how to say this anyway uh so this guy geologist dorsey hager stated unequivocally that uh, this particular theory is as fundamental to the geologist as newton's gravitational law is to the physicist now um I'm getting a little long in the, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm getting to the point part where I should find some clever way to wrap this up. But you know what happens next? Uh, this, this whole concept comes together with salt domes and, uh, and, and not too much later, we have a thing called spindle top, but spindle top is enough material for a whole nother episode. So we're not going to get into that now, but that is where we're headed. So, what have we learned today? Um, the end, you know, when it comes to oil and gas uh, production, um, that the uh, you know first we applied our engineering smarts to the problem of how do we get how do we how do we get this stuff find a better way to get this stuff out of the ground that's just coming out of the ground anyway, so we can find it because there it is. Um, but eventually we decided, well, we got to go find it. Uh, I mean, we we need to know where else is it. We can't just sit around. Waiting for this stuff to for the for the bubbling crude to bubble up out of the ground, so uh, yeah, so meanwhile all the way back um, now timelines here right so uh, late eighteen hundreds the oil um, the oil uh, industry is starting to commercialize and uh, and we're, we're finding more things that we can do with this stuff and and uh, and and. And we got the cable tool drilling and all that. But back in, that's, that's late 1800s, back in 1774, uh, well, not, well, that was just when he, 1774 was just when he, he said the funny thing about the arts. But uh, back in, in mid-late 1700s, we've got these, uh, 
these ideas of of geology and these theory and these observations that that were really different from the way people understood how the earth was put together that's why james hutton wrote something called the theory of the earth <laughs> like a whole new it's like hey guys guess what we've had it wrong the whole time here's what really happens and you put that together with this notion that the earth is continuously being formed and that the present is the key to the past and what they're saying is we can look at the earth today and the various attributes and characteristics and things that we can observe and from that we can determine what happened in the past and how it got the way it is and lo and behold there's some like there's lots of value in that but one particularly useful thing if you want to provide affordable, abundant, reliable energy to the whole world, one particularly useful thing was that uh, it gave us some, some, some ideas about how to figure out where the oil was, and all of that came together. You know, not too much longer, not, not too much longer, um, the engineering side of the business was not flying solo for that long because it was in 1892, just 30-some years after the Drake well, that uh, a couple of guys were looking at this place called Spindletop. I'm just going to dip in a Spindletop here just for a second. And that's going to be it until until another episode. But um, uh, and one of the guys uh, who you may have heard about in oil and gas lore, Patillo Higgins, uh, or Patillo, I don't know. His, his last name's not Spanish, so whatever it is. Anyway, Higgins uh, was reading about. This, this infant science of geology. And he read a paper by a man named Israel White of the West Virginia Geological Survey, 1892. And that paper convinced Higgins that Spindletop was, in fact, an anticline. So, it didn't take long for all of a sudden us to say, you know what? For us to say. And then we all said, we need some science in here alongside this engineering. So uh, that's what happened, folks. And, uh, and, that's, and, and, and that's the story. Now, of course, the science, the, the geology, um, you know, you, you go from that point, 18, right around the turn of the century. Uh, a lot of things happen in geology over the next you know, 50 or 60 years in terms of, uh, you know, seismic came about and that really allowed us to, uh, to get a much better picture, uh, of what's under the ground. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it, it, you're, my geologist friends will tell you, even with seismic, it's still a guess, but it's a much better guess than just looking at what's happening on the surface. So a lot happened in geology, but the beginnings of it, the beginnings of it, uh, it happened early on and it happened because, uh, I, I guess we, we got tired of running around the countryside looking for oil bubbling up. And so we said, damn it, we need some science in this thing. And that's really really kind of the story, like the, the whole story of oil and gas is the continued application of science and, and engineering to solve the hard problems, overcome the obstacles, keep it going forward, find new ways. I guess uh, really it's, the, it's that character of the people in the industry which uh, and that mentality which could probably best be described in the words of Larry the Cable Guy, get her done. <laughs> <laughs>